0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 5th. It's the day after Independence Day, July 4th in the United States. I'm on the West Coast. It's late morning. I hope you're all well. Um, July 4th I guess was an example of an event which was fearless people rose up against their supposed uh, occupier threw them off and in a fearless way established independence a few months ago uh, I had the British political philosopher David Runciman on the show um, talking about Thomas Hobbes I'm not quite sure what Hobbes would have thought about American independence, but Hobbes's political theory was very much built upon the idea of fear. Runciman's very influenced by Hobbes. In fact, his excellent podcast series on um, intellectual thinkers, uh, our dominant intellectual thinkers, is built around Hobbes's Leviathan. In the Leviathan, um, a seventeenth, mid-seventeenth century book. Hobbes argues that to maintain peace and order in society, uh, we need to be fearful. Thomas Hobbes himself, I think his life more than anything else was defined by his fear of physical injury lived in a particularly turbulent uh, times. And for him, fear was a good thing. It was the thing that maintained order and organization in human society. Uh, My guest today on the show has nothing to do with Thomas Hobbes. I don't even know if uh, uh, he's familiar with his work, Uh, but he is a writer on fear. He's a business writer. He's someone I've known for quite a long time. Uh, John Hagel is the author of a new book, uh, The Journey Beyond Fear. Uh, John, uh, you're talking to me from over the bay in Tiburon in uh, Northern California. I hope I haven't Caught you figuratively at least with your pants down, uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to Thomas Hubbs. Are you familiar with his ideas?
1: Oh, yeah, no, I've read Thomas, but uh, it's been many years, so not recently.
0: To- um, I was going to call you Thomas, uh, yeah. John. Um, as I said, your book is called cool, Your New Book, You've Written Many, The Journey Beyond Fear. Um, perhaps to get into this, you might define what you mean by fear, and perhaps also in passing, tell me a little bit about why you think Hobbes was wrong in seeing fear as a good thing.
1: Yeah, well, the catalyst for writing my book is I, I started writing it three years ago, and I, I travel around the world as part of my work. I was struck by the the that wherever I went, the dominant emotion that I was encountering uh, was fear at the highest levels organizations, lowest levels out in the community. And while I think the fear is understandable, I think there are forces that are reshaping our global economy and society in ways that create increasing pressure on all of us. So the fear is understandable. It's also very limiting. I mean, there, there are many different impacts or results of fear. One is we tend to shrink our time horizons. We just focus on the moment because there's so much pressure right now. We can't afford to look ahead. Um, we begin to adopt a uh, win-lose view of the world. It's either I'm going to get this or you're going to get it. And it's up to us what to decide. What is
0: fear, John, though? Is it physical fear? Is it emotional fear? It's... Um, it, is it fear of failure, fear of success, fear of happiness or unhappiness? How would you define it as a word?
1: Well, it, it takes many different forms. I think the fear that I'm talking about, I mean, you, know, you have fear of spiders, fear of you know, heights. I'm talking about a fear about what's ahead in the future and the fear of failure, basically, that we're going to lose what we have, what we value, and that that's going to lead us to a much less satisfying life or maybe even death um, so that's that's the fear that I'm talking about uh,
0: uh, on first sights your book uh, the journey beyond fear leverage the three pillars of positivity to build your success might sound like just another business book about being successful and reinventing oneself or the traditional silicon valley jargon but it's more than that. I was really struck, John, uh, by how vulnerable you make yourself in the book. How you begin on a on a on a on a, on a very revealing autobiographical note. I've known you for years, and I, I've read some of your other books. You're always known as John Hegel the Third, and I never never occurred to me to wonder where you're from. You reveal that in your book. Why is your own Autobiography, your own story uh so important in this book the journey beyond fear
1: well from for a variety of reasons i i have made the journey beyond fear myself and so i think sharing my experiences and my learning what did i learn in that journey can be helpful to others so um and partly it's just willingness to acknowledge that i i had and still have a lot of fear it's not like it's uh you know for other people it's uh, i've experienced it myself and again i want to share the experience and and the lessons learned and be helpful to others and much more beyond the business context i mean clearly there are there are reasons for fear in the business world but for all of us in whatever we're doing in our lives there is fear um so i, I just yeah
0: on the surface, your upbringing sounds idyllic. You traveled around the world with very successful parents. You lived well. You went to Florence. You went all over the world. And yet, as you reveal at the beginning of the book, you, you were quite miserable. It was a very troubled and troubling childhood, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would say part of my childhood was miserable and dominated by fear. I mean, part of it was, you know, the the... Stimulation of being able to experience many different cultures around the world. We lived in a different country virtually every year. Um, but the challenge that I faced was my mother had significant anger issues and went into tirades that filled me with fear. I mean, and my father, being a gentleman, was retreating. He wasn't there to protect me, so I felt abandoned and under attack, and that was very stressful and filled me with fear as a child
0: do you think many people share not your own particular history but do you think many people's childhoods whilst on the surface they look happy are actually filled with one kind of fear or another
1: you know i i i don't know i mean i think most families in my experience are a bit of a mixture some more around fear some more around fulfillment but um I think there are very few that I would say have a perfect childhood where it was all of nurturing and and uh, encouraging. Uh, but you know, I I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say that everybody has had a fearful childhood. But I'd say that once they emerge from childhood, they're experiencing more and more pressure that is filling them with fear, whether whether they had it as a child or not.
0: Do you think it was an act of bravery to put such revealing? uh narrative in about your own miserable experience with your mother did, did you <laughs> struggle over that because uh I, I i do think it reflects a degree of bravery on your part to be so honest
1: no well again as a child in my early life uh you know again this has been a long journey for me i didn't really make the journey beyond fear until i was in my 50s so uh it took me quite a while but in particularly when I was driven by fear, I was very reluctant to share anything about myself because it might be used against me or make me seem like I'm a weakling or whatever. So no, I was trying to hide that. But uh, over time, I've come to believe that actually by sharing my own experiences, I can help others. And that's something I want to do. Uh,
0: John, we had the British uh, psychologist Uh, Lucy Falks from University College London on on the show recently. Um, She has an excellent new book out, Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is. And she writes in some detail in the book about young people and the anxiety now they they all suffer from. Not all, but many suffer from. Do you think, uh, and I get the sense from your book that you're suggesting this, that we live in a particularly anxiety-ridden age, particularly in generational terms, that young people are, are particularly prone to anxiety, to fear?
1: You know, I, I've come to believe that every generation is succumbing to fear. I mean, the older generation, the people who are approaching retirement, guess what? The good news is they're gonna live longer. Bad news? They didn't expect to live longer they haven't saved the money to live longer. There's fear. How am I going to live longer? How am I going to support myself? So there's anxiety and fear among the older generation, but also the younger generation. So part of the reason for writing this book is I believe every generation is feeling this fear. It may have some different dimensions to it, but we're all under increasing pressure.
0: John, part of your, and, and you use this word journey as one of your pillars in the book to escape fear your core journey it seems to me maybe you'll correct me if i'm wrong was to come to california you believed in the idea of silicon valley perhaps in some ways you still do although i'm guessing you're in some ways like most of us now ambivalent about the silicon valley quote unquote achievement to what extent is this broad feeling of fear which as you suggest all generations share has it caused by technology, by artificial intelligence. You write in the book about the billboard on 101, the, 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 the big road that runs from San Francisco to San Jose through Silicon Valley, the billboard about AI coming along to take our jobs. Is this a, a technology-inspired fear, do you think, mostly in our culture today?
1: You know, I think technology has uh, played a significant role in increasing the pressure on all of us. That billboard originally was not about AI. It was about the fact that, you know, a million people around the world can do your job. That was because we were increasingly connected and it no longer was as much of an issue if I'm here and they're there. No, now with technology, they could be anywhere and still do my job. So, yes, in that respect, technology is definitely increasing pressure on all of us uh, on a variety of levels. And so um, that definitely feeds the fear.
0: John, do you see a successful career, a meaningful work career as being the escape, the, the, the key narrative? And again, that's a word you use throughout your text. The key narrative to escape fear is is this a book about work itself and how work can save us?
1: Not at all. I mean, again, I, I I work with some of the leaders of major companies and institutions around the world, and I can tell you if I establish trust with them and in the privacy of their offices, they will tell me how afraid they are. Even though by all external standards, they're hugely successful, they know that the lifespan of a CEO of a large company is shrinking significantly, and they could be fired next quarter if they miss the, you know, the results by a point or two, there's fear everywhere. And again, I think we're driven, we, we've been told by our parents and society to pursue work that will make us financially successful. But that is not addressing the fear. My, my belief is the only way we're going to address the fear is by finding something that really excites us.
0: Passion, John, yes.
1: <laughs> a very, well, specific, uh, very specific... I know you're
0: familiar with the work of the iconoclastic business professor on the East Coast, Scott Galloway. Um, he famously said last, or in, in 2019, they call him a self-made millionaire. I guess all millionaires, unless they inherit a self-made, following your passion is bullshit do this instead and then um, uh, Galloway uh, Galloway's secret to success don't follow your passion, become a tax lawyer. Scott's <laughs> been on the show now of course you and I both know Scott loves to uh, loves to ferment discussion to put it politely. But um, what about Scott's point? It's all very well telling kids graduating college, and I've got a couple of kids, one who just graduated, another who's just started. It's all very well telling them to follow their passion. But that's really hard, and most people don't succeed in that area. Most people end up, if they want to follow their passion as a writer or an actor or a, uh, a script writer or a musician, they end up having to take an ordinary job like a tax accountant.
1: Yeah, I, you know it's a complicated discussion. I would say that first, first of all, very few people are pursuing their passion. They were trained from a very young age in school and by their parents. Ignore your passion. Become a tax lawyer. Study hard. Get the credentials. Have a successful career. So they've given up even looking for their passion, much less pursuing it. And my advice is find that passion. Don't stop. I have two daughters who I that was my only advice to them first of all, find your passion. Don't stop until you find it and then find a way to make a living from it. And it's hard. Absolutely. And did
0: they find that passion or have they found yes. passion, your daughters? Yes, yes. What do so, they do?
1: Well, it, it's complicated. One works uh, in the tech world, um, uh, you know, and has been very successful. Uh, The other one has been pursuing new media um, and pursuing, creating a variety of new media initiatives that have been quite successful. So um, I think it's it's a question of just the challenge if we're in a world of mounting pressure and we're just working to earn an income, we're never going to learn as fast as somebody who has real passion about that. So we're gonna lose our jobs to those who do have the passion. And if we really have passion, we're going to be driven to learn faster and continue to have more and more impact and we will continue to be successful. So I, I just believe that it's becoming more and more critical to find a passion and pursue it. Um,
0: John, we had the, uh, let's call her progressive journalist, Sarah Jaffe on the show recently. She has a new book out work. Won't love you back. And. She sort of, I I think, symbolizes a reaction against work, suggesting that we're not going to find ourselves in work. Is she wrong? Can work love us back, or can we discover not personal love, but meaningful existence through work?
1: Yeah, again, it's complicated. I mean, I would say that I've written a lot about this in the business context. I believe the way we've defined work today in most large institutions, is not human and does not support us as humans and our passion. Passion, I believe, in large enterprises is deeply suspect. Again, the message is: if you've got passion, pursue it as a hobby after work. But in, when you're in work, just listen to your boss and follow the instructions and deliver reliably. Uh, and <clears throat> it's it's a very uh, hostile environment to passion. So I. You know, but I believe that people who have passion are pursuing work and and, you know, achieving impact as a result. My just one example quickly is a a very senior administrator at MIT um, was just terribly frustrated with his work. He was basically an administrator and processing paperwork. He figured out his passion was repairing appliances. And he quit his work, and he became a handyman. <laughs> and he's been very successful and very excited. He's now doing what really excites him. So you got to find the work that's going to feed your passion.
0: Um, John, the, the book is, is is embraces the idea of exploring, of, of voyaging. Um, and again, in a very different context, a couple of months ago, I had the historian Lawrence Bergreen on the show. Um, book about In Search of a Kingdom about Francis Drake and Elizabeth I, two extremely remarkable and romantic figures. Drake, of course, was the first uh, Northern European to set foot in California. Why? Why is the idea of the voyage of exploration so central to your book?
1: Well, it's because I think people who really have this, and I again, I. I've defined passion in a very specific way. There are many different forms of passion. The passion I'm talking about is the passion of the explorer. And people who have this passion are driven to explore and find ways to have more and more impact in whatever area they're excited about. It could be anything from gardening to big wave surfing to marketing, whatever. But they're driven to go beyond what others have done. They're excited about that, the opportunity to have more impact. They're driven to do that. So,
0: You said you were driven both literally and figuratively to California, as I said, as a young man. You, you bought into the, the narrative of, of Silicon Valley. Do you still buy into it? Do you still see it as a, a legitimate um, way of
1: self-realization?
0: Would you advise your younger self? if he was around in 2021 to come out to Silicon Valley?
1: Only if you're passionate about what Silicon Valley is passionate about. Again, it, it's very much specific to individuals. One of the things that drew me to Silicon Valley was the oppor- what I call an opportunity-based narrative, which was this notion of focusing on opportunities and the, the imp- potential of technology to change the world for the better. And I think that's driven many people over generations to Silicon Valley to be successful entrepreneurs, and they're from all over the world. But again, it's not everybody is going to be excited about technology and the opportunity to change the world with technology. So I'm not saying everyone should come to Silicon Valley. <laughs>
0: well, I hope they don't, because uh, we'll tip over into the sea. Yeah, I'm curious, John, though, on your, on your view of Silicon Valley, we've had a lot of critical work on it. We had the uh, young uh, novelist, Kathy Wang, local novelist from San Francisco. She has a a satirical new book out, Imposter Syndrome. We've also had George Zarkadakis, uh, author of Cyber Republic, who still sees technology and P2P technology in particular as a way of saving our democracy and ourselves. Where are you on on the promise or the peril of Silicon Valley? Is the glass half full or half empty or neither?
1: (laughs) Well, I keep saying that technology itself is value neutral. It's all about how we use the technology that's going to make the difference. And it'll either be used for for good or for bad. And it's up to us. It's not the technology that's creating the bad things. It's how we're using it, how we're doing it. So I, I believe that it has the potential to create I I talk about exponentially expanding opportunity. I believe with technology, we can create far more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have been imaginable a decade or two ago. But it's up to us to see the opportunity and pursue it. And again, I think with fear, one of the reasons I'm so (laughs) committed to helping people to move beyond fear is if you feel fear, if you're driven by fear, You don't even see the opportunity, much less have the motivation to pursue it. So we're driven by the pressure, the pressure that's being created on so many levels. And and that just feeds the fear. And we get into this vicious cycle of, of more and more fear.